ladies. We're going to get started with our second session. And I'm really going to try to fly through this because my husband has always said the mind can only absorb what the seat can endure. So, but what I want you to do and what you have to see before we get into it, if you brought your outline from the last time, I want you to look at, we're going to start with verse 5 in Habakkuk chapter 1, because we need to keep the, we need to keep it going, we need to keep the flow going so that we can um, really get an idea for this. But this is what I have on your second outline that God answers. And we see it in Habakkuk 1, 5 through 11. Now remember, in the first four verses, we're seeing that Habakkuk is questioning. And he's asking God. He does not understand everything that is going on, and he is questioning God. So what I'm going to do is look at how God is going to answer him. And I want to tell you, this is not what Habakkuk is expecting. He's expecting God to answer, don't worry, Habakkuk, I am going to take care of the sin of my people. But what Habakkuk is not going to be able to fully grasp is how God is going to be disciplining his people. So we're going to look starting with verse 5. And I'm going to read to you through verse 11. Here's what God says to Habakkuk. Look among the nations and see and wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. And I'm just going to tell you, I did a little bit of research into the Chaldeans, which was the Babylonians. This is another word for the Babylonian army. And if you remember in our outline, we said one of the things that was going on when Habakkuk wrote this was that there was the rise of the Babylonian Empire that was threatening to invade Judah. And the Chaldeans were known for their brutality. They were known for torturing people, their prisoners. They, they were absolutely horrible, and they were feared. They were strong. This was a strong army. They had horses. They had everything to come in and march. And for them to come into a little tiny country like Judah would be absolutely nothing for them. And what God is saying to Habakkuk is, I am going to take care of the problem in Judah, among my own people, but I am going to do it through a nation that this is going to astound you. And Habakkuk is astounded. And I just want to give you a few principles. Um, number one, when Habakkuk asked, don't you know, don't you see what's going on? And what God is answering here is, 
he is very well aware because he says, look, just look and see, Habakkuk, what I'm going to do. Hebrews 4.13, or I'm sorry, that's 4, yeah, it's 4.13. I think I have 4.15 in your notes, and that was wrong. It's 4.13. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God doesn't miss anything. God knows what's going on. Psalm 121.4 says, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And then Isaiah 55.8, a familiar verse to us, but this is something that Habakkuk is going to have to really internalize. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declared the Lord. Just because we don't see God doing something and we don't see God working does not mean that he is not working. Oh, yes, he is working here. But it is the Chaldeans, and we just read that when we read verses 6 through 11. They are terrified of this country. And God is telling about it, yeah, that's going to be the country that's going to come in and invade you. I want you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 5. And we're going to look at the perception here of the Chaldeans in Jeremiah chapter 5. Fifteen and seventeen says, Behold, I am bringing against you a nation from afar, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It is an enduring nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. Their quiver is like an open tomb. They are all mighty warriors, and they shall eat up your harvest and your food. They shall eat up your sons and your daughters. They shall eat up your flocks and your herds. They shall eat up your vines and your fig trees, your fortified cities in which you trust. They shall beat down with the sword. This is what's going to, this is what God is going to allow to happen. And I want to tell you right now, we are studying the book of Lamentations, and Jeremiah penned the book of Lamentations after all this happened. Habakkuk is before it all happens and he is terrified. Jeremiah lived through it. And Jeremiah, in, that's what Lamentations is, it is a lament as he is looking over the city of Jerusalem and he's looking over the country at what God did. Jeremiah's question was, how could you have done this? God. And Habakkuk's question is, how can you do this? How are you going to be doing this? Why? And so this is what we find his second dilemma is. He says, how can God use a nation more sinful than Israel to discipline his own people? So look what he does. I love this. This is one of my favorite parts in Habakkuk. Look what he says in verse 12. Now this is his second dilemma. And here's what he says. And he is basically reaffirming the character of God through the names of God. And he says, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. By the way, Habakkuk knows enough of the prophecy of, Jer of Isaiah to know that God is not going to completely destroy Jeremiah, or Habakkuk knows. I know he's not going to completely destroy us. And he knows they're not going to totally make an end. Of the nation. But he is now, what he has to do to understand what is going to happen and to be able to deal with this, 
He's got to reaffirm everything that he knows to be true about God. And what I love that we find in the Old Testament is all the many names that God has for himself. The names of Yahweh, the I Am, the everlasting God. We have Jehovah Jireh, God our provider. He displays his character through his names. And he says, um, O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. And I want to tell you a little bit about these names of God, and I have it in your notes. The everlasting God is El Olam, and that references God and his laws, his promises, his covenant. Habakkuk is reminding God of his covenant here when he calls him the everlasting God, El Olam, because God's covenant was everlasting. The covenant that he made to Abraham is a forever covenant. And Habakkuk is reminding God of this character trait. He calls him Lord, my God, and that is Yahweh Elohei, God's personal covenant name that he gave to Moses, by the way, when Moses said to God, you know, when I go back to the Pharaoh and or I go back to your people that are in Egypt and tell them that you, God, are going to be moving them out, they're going to want to know what is his name. Because remember, they've been in Egypt for 400 years where there's a God for everything and those gods all had names. So he said, what am I going to tell them? What is your name? And God said, Yahweh. I am who I am. And basically, I am who I was. I am who I am now. And I am who I will ever be. And this is now going to be my personal name. This is God wanting to have a relationship with his people. It's going to be personal. Because remember, God is going to be tabernacling with them. He is going to be present with them wherever they go. And in fact, when they made the tabernacle, when they made um, that holy of holy places in the tabernacle, later made in the temple, it was filled with the presence of God, that Shekinah glory that just filled it, and they could always see God. Whenever they camped in the wilderness, that glory emerged from the tabernacle, from that holy of holies. That were, remember, when they would pitch camp, going through this wilderness for 40 years, the tabernacle would be pitched in the center, and then all the tribes of Judah, according to their tribes, would be all camped around it. And whenever they moved out of their tent at night, they could see that fire, because this was the glory of God that filled it. In the day, the cloud that settled over it, they were always aware. This is God, Yahweh. Habakkuk is reminding God, you are the personal God. This is Yahweh, and he calls him Yahweh Elohim, God's personal covenant name. It also is majestic, sovereign creator of the universe. That's Elohim, which is plural, or the singular of Elohim, which is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's in the beginning, Elohim, the sovereign creator. Knowing the names of God in Hebrew, is very beneficial to understanding. And I'm telling you, I am not a Hebrew scholar, but I know when I can look it up and say, what does God mean in this one? And you look it up, you do strong concordance, and you can find out uh, what the name of God is. But, and then he calls him my holy one. And this is Kiddush Yisrael. And that's meaning holy is set apart. It's separate. And what when he calls him that, when he's saying God... Oh, my holy one, you are apart from all others. You are holy. You are other than us. He's reminding God. And then my rock, I don't think I have this listed in your notes, but my rock is Yahweh Suri, and that's T-S-U-R-I. 
And that means God's permanence, his protection, and his enduring faithfulness. And what Habakkuk is doing is he is reminding God of all of these things that God is, because this is too much for Habakkuk to be able to comprehend in him. And so, with that, oh, by the way, yeah, let's go into 13. You who are of pure eyes and to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up? First of all, it was, his complaint was, how can you remain silent when your people are sinning? Why are you doing something? And now that God said, I am doing something, I am going to bring another nation that's wicked, now it's, how can you look on and see wickedness swallow up the, you know, righteous? Because we are your people. So Habakkuk got his answer, but it's not what he was expecting. Have, that, has that ever happened to you? Have you ever prayed? I will tell you something that happened to me about, oh boy, I was just remembering it not that long ago, maybe 15 years ago. And I remember praying to God, Lord, please help me to love you with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, and with all my mind. I thought that's a pretty good, holy prayer to pray. And I really meant it. But what I didn't know was that God was going to take me through a valley that I, there were times when I didn't even want to get out of bed in the morning. I was going to go through, it was a dark, dark period in our lives, in my, in my husband's in my life, with one of our children. And it was so dark that I can remember thinking, I cannot get through this. I don't even want to wake up in the morning. There is no way. And I thought, but you know what it did? It drove me to such a dependence on God during those times. And God, in his sovereign mercy, knew that this is what it was going to take in my life to answer that prayer for me. For me to love him. Because I'll tell you what, I was turning to him. I, this was, God and I were like that during that period of my life. Because there was nowhere else to go. And it was with God. And I didn't expect that God was going to, I thought I was just going to get this, oh boy, it's just going to well up in me. I'm going to have this wonderful love for God. And it's just going to be spilling out. No. It took me through a valley. That's how he answered there was some time where I wished I had never prayed that prayer. But you know what? We're on the other end. And coming out of it, I look back on that now, and I can honestly tell you, I would not have had it any other way. Because that is what brought me. I think we go through some of our biggest growth spurts in our walk with the Lord, and it's through those deep trials that he will take us through that teach us to love the Lord our God with all our hearts. These other things that I had been concerned about, you know what, they didn't matter anymore. Nothing matters. Although, and I'm not saying that we don't enjoy things. God gives us all things to enjoy. But there are times in our lives where maybe he just needs to prune us a little bit to bring us and draw us closer to him. And it would be the hard times. And that's where you find yourself reaffirming everything. Everything you draw on, that you know to be true about God, and you rehearse it, and you rehearse it, and you rehearse it. That's what you do. And this is what Habakkuk is doing now. So that's going to bring us, that's going to take us to 
Session two, your next outline. And please don't let your stomach start rolling because there's no way I'm gonna get done with 15 minutes here, but I will try my best. But anyway, what I want us to look at is we look at, um, we're gonna look at Habakkuk chapter two, verse one. And Habakkuk says here, after God has told him what's gonna happen and after he is, he's actually, he himself is rehearsing. If you look at the rest of those verses, all those verses are talking about the Chaldeans, what they do. And Habakkuk is like, God, this is what they do. Um, you know, it's like, you've made man, and we're like the fish of the sea. I'm actually back in verse 14. And he, which is Nebuchadnezzar, or the Chaldeans, brings all of them up with a hook and gathers them in his trident. This is what this guy does. Lord, how can this happen? So, what he does is he says in chapter 2, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and I will look to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And this is a time for isolation. There are times when we just need to let, get alone with God and away from all the other voices. And I can tell you, my husband and I went through that when we were going through that time. There were people telling, you should do this and this is what you should be doing and this is what you should be doing. And you know what? We said, no, we're going to stick to them. We can't let all of these other voices be telling us what we need to be doing. At this point, we need to be alone with God. We need to be in the Word and see what the Word is telling us that we need to be doing. And I just have a couple of examples here of being alone with God, all alone with just God. And there was a time in the life of Moses, and it was actually after that golden calf experience, that God basically had said to Moses, you know what, after what these people did, Moses, you take them on, but I am not going to go with you lest I kill them on the way. Instead, I'll send an angel to go, but I'm not going with them. And Moses pled with God, and he said, if your presence doesn't go with us, then I'm not going. I don't want to go without your presence. And he then asked God, he said, God, show me your glory. And so God took Moses all by himself, and he placed him in a cleft of the rock. And it says, it goes on to say in Exodus 34, that the glory of the Lord passed over Moses. And that is where we first hear a very familiar section of scripture that is repeated over and over again where he said the Lord, the Lord infinite in steadfast mercy abounding in grace and steadfast love this has uh, showing forgiveness, forgiving people of their sin, this is how God described his glory to God, to Moses but Moses was all alone when God did that to him Elijah Another guy that after he had had a wonderful victory on a mountain where he had just struck down all the prophets of Baal and then Queen Jezebel found out that he had done it and she was chasing after him to kill Elijah. And what did he do? He ran and ran and ran until he fell exhausted. And he told God, I am the only one that is left here in Israel. He was all alone and God said to Elijah, yet I have reserved 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to the need to bail. You're not all alone, Elijah. But Elijah had to get alone with God.
to hear his voice. And if you remember, it says that God came to him in a still, small voice. It was a whisper. And sometimes we just need to get to where God can whisper to us. So I'm calling this God's waiting room. And we're now going to go, Habakkuk's waiting. He's now all alone. He has stationed himself at the watch post. And we're going to look at verses 2 and 3. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make a plan. This is now the prophecy. This is what God is now having him write down. Make a plan on tablets so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. So he's waiting. And what God is telling him here is this is going to be, what God is telling him is after God disciplines his own people through the Chaldeans, God is then going to bring down the Chaldeans who are, looks like they're taking out Judah. They're not. We know that God made a covenant. Judah is never going to be permanently destroyed. But guess what country you don't see anymore? Babylon. By the way, this is just an inside thing. But do you know what? Of all of the countries that God actually allowed to come in and judge Israel for their sin, God let them be overtaken. That was God's warning to them. Deuteronomy 28, sometime go through that. Because in that chapter, God gives the blessings if Israel would obey and the curses if they didn't obey. And the very at the very end of Deuteronomy chapter 28, it says that if you forsake me, I will scatter you among the nations, and they will no longer be this one nation. But of all the nations that God scattered Israel to, not one is still around. But who's still around? Israel. Israel is the one of those ancient biblical nations that has survived. It has, it's amazing. That tiny little piece of real estate, not much bigger than the state of New Jersey, with enemies all around who hate them, that is still surviving. But all the others are not. And in, in, in um, this session that we're going to see, this is where God is now going to be letting Habakkuk know what is going to happen to the Chaldeans. He is going to have his day with them. But in the meantime, Habakkuk is in the waiting room. And I just want to refer you, and you know this verse, I'm sure, that Isaiah 40, 31, that says, they that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will walk and not be weary. They will run and not faint. And something that I have learned is that when you are in God's waiting room, it is just the opposite. This is, this is going to be a believer. We are a believer waiting on God. It's not like someone who is not a believer because what does waiting usually bring when we're in you know, maybe we've had that test and we're waiting for the results to come back. Maybe something else has happened. We're waiting. You know what? We've cashed 
the last check, and now my husband, and I have lost my job. I'm waiting. Where is the next income going to come from? What does it usually do? Your stomach starts churning. It brings anxiety. You're wringing your hands. But not so with a believer who trusts God. We're still, we go through the same things. And we're going to be waiting. But when we wait on God and our trust is in God, it is the exact opposite. We are renewed. And we mount up with wings like eagles. We carry on. We press on. We carry on. Because that's what happens when we are waiting on God, when we are a believer. And Habakkuk is now in God's waiting room. So here's what he says. Now look at this. It says, look at verse 3, for still the vision awaits, is a, it's a point of time. It hasn't happened yet. So Habakkuk, you need to be patient. And Psalm 37, 7 says, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in the way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Oh, I wonder if Habakkuk read that. Was that Psalm written? <laughs> Probably. It could have been in the Psalms that he would have read. Ecclesiastes 7.8 says, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Have you ever wanted to jump to conclusions that all oh, this is bad instead of, you know what, don't get yourself all in a tizzy over what you don't know yet. Yeah, this is what happens. But don't jump to conclusions. And I will tell you, I am one that I jump to conclusions all the time. My husband will tell you, I am like the Eeyore of the family. That if something happens, right away it's the worst. It's the worst possibility that it can happen. My husband right now, I noticed that he was limping yesterday. And I said, why are you limping? And he said, well, I've got it. He said, I made an appointment with a podiatrist. Now, you've got to know my husband. He's a physician himself. He never makes appointments with other doctors. He said, I made an appointment with a podiatrist. And I'm looking at him like, what? What are the, is it cancer, Randy? That's the first thing I'm thinking. I don't know what you're this. And he said, Chip, that is so silly. He said, no, I've got, I think I have an infection of my toenail. I'm going to get it taken care of. Now, I'm going to, you don't think it's this, do you? And I always need him. He is the very one that is always very calm, very collected. And he has had to deal with me all of his life. He just jumps to all of these conclusions. But this is better as the end of the Don't jump to conclusions. But the patient in spirit is better. He's also telling Habakkuk, wait with confidence. Because he says in verse 3b, it will surely come. It won't delay. This is, this is what God is going to be doing to the Chaldeans now. Remember, not, not what God's going to do to Israel. We already dealt with that. The Chaldeans are going to get them. But now God is going to get the Chaldeans. And he says, and basically what this is saying is when the time is right, when it happens, it's not going to, it's going to happen just like that. When my timing is there for this to happen, it's going to come. And it's not going to delay. It's going to come when I say it's time for it to come. I want you to turn with me to Isaiah 46. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 8 to 13. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God. And there is no other declaring the end from the beginning. This is what God is now doing for Habakkuk. Declaring the end from the beginning from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. 
and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, by the way, that's the Chaldeans, the man of my counsel from a far country, this is Nebuchadnezzar, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass, I have purposed and I will do it. So God is going to do what he says he's going to do, and he's right now giving Habakkuk a little bit of inside knowledge. We would call insider training. This is what he's doing with Habakkuk. If you could bet on that during the day, Habakkuk would have made millions because this is what God told him was going to happen. So it is going to come. Hebrews 11, 1 says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Romans 8, 24 and 25 says, now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we don't see, we wait for it with patience. And you know why we're waiting for it? Because we're confident. We are waiting with confidence that what God says is going to happen. We wait. We're patient and we're confident in our waiting. What we're going to find next is going to be a contrast. And this is in verse 4. By the way, probably one of the last part of verse 4, one of the most famous verses, not just in Habakkuk, but through Scripture. Behold, his soul is puffed up. This is Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar is going to represent the wicked. Okay? He is the wicked. His soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous will live by his faith. And, you know, at first it looks like this is kind of random. What are they talking about? His soul's puffed up? By the way, do you realize, I never even knew this was Nebuchadnezzar <laughs> until, you know, it, sometimes we read scripture, we just read it, and it's nothing but a smorgasbord of words to us. But when we dig and we get into it, we realize, this is Nebuchadnezzar. His soul is the wicked. And what God is doing is he is showing the difference between the wicked and the righteous. And I want you to turn to Psalm 1. We are going to look at a very clear contrast. Psalm chapter 1. By the way, if you are into memorizing scripture, verses 1 through 3 are great, is a great passage to start. To just to, If you want to do it in clumps when you're memorizing. But listen to what it says. This is the righteous. Now, we saw the wicked. He's all puffed up. His soul is not right within him. He is arrogant. That's the wicked. But look at the righteous. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But look at this. His delight is in the law of the Lord. That's the word of God. That's what he delights in. And in his law, he meditates day and night. And look at, look at where he is. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Now here's the contrast. The wicked are not so. They're like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And what God is showing him here is that Habakkuk, they're not going to last. They're wicked. Oh, yes, I'm going to use them. I am going to use the wickedness, and I am going to 
raising up Nebuchadnezzar. Now, I'm not saying, and please don't misunderstand, God is not causing Nebuchadnezzar to sin. Nebuchadnezzar has a hard heart, and he has sinned. But God is going to use that. And he's going to, because we know God doesn't sin, he's not tempted, he cannot be tempted, neither does he tempt anyone. But he is going to be using this sin of Nebuchadnezzar to chastise his own people. God does use sin in our lives. God is sovereign, even over sin. He doesn't cause it, but he is sovereign over it. And if he's going to accomplish his purpose using sin, then he's going to do that. And he is going to be using this. And what he is um, telling him is that they are not going to last. The wicked will not. And But the righteous shall live by his faith. And I have a quote here from John MacArthur. In contrast to the wicked, the righteous are preserved through their faith. They are preserved. And here, Habakkuk is echoing a timeless truth that goes all the way back to Abraham in Genesis 15, 6. And you can write this down. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Our faith and our believing in God is always what becoming righteous is about. It's believing the very word of God. Abraham believed God, and that's what was counted to him as righteousness. That's the difference between the righteous and the wicked. The wicked don't believe, and they're, gonna, they're not going to last. They're going to perish. So don't stew over this, Habakkuk. If we had time, we would look to Psalm 37, but we don't have time. But that's where um, the psalmist was, again, stewing. We already referenced him over how the wicked were thriving. And it goes on to say in that chapter, but the wicked are not going to last. And this is the same thing that God is telling Habakkuk. And this is the very core of chapter 2, verse 4. What does it mean to live by faith? Um, the righteous are going to live by their faith. Because we have faith in the very word of God, in the promises of God. That God is going to do what he says he's going to do. And when it looks like calamity and everything else is closing in around us, we are going to trust our Heavenly Father that knows all about that. God is working. God knows all about that. We live. We are preserved. And that's not just for eternity, because the righteous are. We know that. But one day we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. When we believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior, that he is the one who came and took our sin for us. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that he became sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God through Christ Jesus. That's the salvation message. Realizing that in ourselves we are sinful people. And there is no way that we could ever be declared righteous. But Jesus became our sacrifice. And he became sin. It's not just, you know, lots of times we talk about God laid all the sin on Jesus. It's not that God just laid it on him. He became Sin for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God so that when God looks at us, when we have believed by faith, it is by grace you have been saved through faith and that out of yourselves. It's nothing that we do. 
we believe this, that Jesus is the one that took my punishment, that's what makes me righteous. And I am now righteous before God, destined for eternity. That's my hope. I know where I'm going. I am destined for eternity in heaven, where God is one day going to rule and reign in perfect righteousness and justice. That's my hope. That's what makes me righteous. And I just want to give you a little bit of doctrine that we in our church have because of this, the righteousness by our faith. I want you to look, we're going to look first of all at justification. That means that we're declared righteous before God and our lives will be preserved. Romans 1, 16 to 18, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation. This is the gospel. For everyone who believes, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And can I tell you something that I never saw before until I was actually typing out this verse for this outline? Is that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. We first have to have faith. We have to believe that what God said is true, but it's for faith. We're saved by faith, and then we're saved for faith so that we can now live our life. We can't live. We cannot, the righteous who is going to live by his faith cannot live by his faith until he has had faith to trust in Jesus Christ for his salvation. So the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. So as we become believers in God, and as we grow in him, our faith is going to grow. And this is how we are going to be able to walk through these times that we're going to have. But it all stems from, first of all, having that relationship with God, becoming righteous with God. <coughs> Another point is sanctification. Hebrews 10.38 says, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. The righteous one, as he lives by faith, we are being conformed to the image of Christ. So our sanctification is bound up in living the righteous shall live by faith. Our hope and assurance, and I want you to turn to Psalm 94, and we're going to look at hope and assurance that we have because of our faith, living by faith. Psalm, let me see, where am I? 94, starting with verse 18. It says, who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought, my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who frame injustice by statutes? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. So once again, the wicked are not going to last. And this is what gives us our hope. And then in point four, Habakkuk 2.4 points us to Christ. It has always been by faith. 
Again, Genesis 15, 6, that he, Abraham, believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. God's promise to Abraham pointed to the future Messiah. When he told Abraham in Genesis 3, 3, that through you, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. How are the nations of the world blessed through Abraham? Who came through the seed of Abraham? It was Jesus Christ. He came, and he's the one that has now, because of Jesus, Gentiles have been able to come. One of the great mysteries that is revealed in the book of Ephesians, that the Gentiles have now been grafted in to Israel, and we all are part of the seed of Abraham. And this is this is what Habakkuk 2.4 is all about. It is a core of our faith. I'm not going to get into Galatians 3.11 to 18. That's going to take way too long, but if you want to see how Paul Sometimes it's a little confusing to work through, but stick with it because he's explaining to the Galatians exactly how righteousness works with faith in this. So anyway, believers under grace live by faith, assured of his promises that God will do what he said he was going to do. And that brings great peace and rest to our souls, even in the midst of depraved and chaotic world in which we live. And something else, I have another question. How are the righteous in Habakkuk's time facing the imminent invasion of the Chaldeans going to get through that? They are going to live by their faith in the everlasting God, the Holy One of Israel, Yahweh Adonai, creator and sovereign of the universe, their rock. They're going to trust in his infinite attributes of the one true God. And you know what it says in Psalm 89, 14? Justice and righteousness are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. This is a righteous, faithful God. And this is who Habakkuk is going to have to put his all his, all his trust and his faith in to be able to get through this horrible time. Believers under grace, live by faith, assured of his promises, that God is going to do what he said he's going to do. I already said that, didn't I? And I'm coming back through here. Okay. I want to give you, sometimes my outline, like I said, is a little bit different than yours, and I'm getting a little bit ahead. But I want to just give you a few things that happen when the righteous live by faith. And this is not in your notes. But 2 Corinthians 6, 5 and 7 says, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We sang that song this morning. I love that song by the Yetis. Great, great. In fact, Robin said to me as we were singing, up, why don't we sing that in our church? We're going to recommend it, aren't we, Robin? Yes, we love that. The righteous soul is anchored in hope. Hebrews 6, 18 to 20 says, hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. And the righteous has a growing faith, which brings a growing confidence and trust in God. Philippians 1, 6 says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And the righteous has peace and rest. Isaiah 32, 17 says, and the effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness quietness, and trust forever. So this is what we can get all from Habakkuk 
before. But your next line that I have, this is when God is now going to go into what is going to be happening to the wicked Chaldeans as you read through this. And we're just going to look at this real quickly. Let's read through it. Moreover, I'm starting at verse 5. Moreover, wine is a traitor. An arrogant man who is never at rest, his greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own, all peoples. By the way, the Chaldeans were known for their drinking. Drinking into drunkenness. If you remember, um, Belshazzar was a Chaldean. The, the, before God brought in Cyrus from Persia, conquered the Babylonians, he was drunk. He was sitting at his house, they were drinking when the handwriting on the wall came. They were known for their drinking. So God is already saying, um, he's never content. Never. Um, it says that he is going to be dealing with them. They're never going to be satisfied. It's discontent. Job 20, verse 25 says, the exulting of the wicked is short, and the joy of the godless is but for a moment. Proverbs 13, 5, the righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the belly of the wicked suffers from want. But in contrast, the soul of the righteous is satisfied. Psalm 23, 1, when the Lord is your shepherd, guess what? I shall not want. There, I will lack nothing that I need. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 16, 11, you make known to me the path of life and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Isaiah 58, 11, and the Lord shall guide you continually and satisfy your desires in scorched places, and you shall be like a watered garden. This is in a desert. This is what you'll be like, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. David says in Psalm 63, 5, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich foods, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. <coughs> And point C, and this is where I'm going to end. God, discontent fosters idolatry. Hebrews 13.5 says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Luke 12.15, and Jesus said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. And that is true. When we are discontent, we start looking for things that are going to satisfy. And you know what? God created us for an intimate relationship with him and only a relationship with him will satisfy the deepest longings of our souls. The pursuit above anything above that relationship is only going to leave us empty. And we will conclude with Solomon, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So I'm going to stop right there. Once again, bring this back with you because we're going to finish up this and get into our last session. After lunch, after small I can't remember what I was doing, but you're gonna break out. Yes. And then this gives them a little more time, doesn't it? <laughs> okay, let me just pray and then we'll be dismissed. Thank you, Lord, for this time again for your word.